If you take your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians, the letter, the letter to the Philippians, and chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, we'll, we'll cut into it at verse 8 and read through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have, done, uh, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desired a gift, But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And amen. We end there at the end of the chapter. Um, perhaps we could, in terms of what we're looking at tonight, we could think particularly in terms of, well, first of all, the words of verse 11. And Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. If we start by just thinking back to the days of the exodus from Egypt, Israel had found themselves before it in a very hopeless position as slaves in bondage. They were held by the might of Egypt and they were oppressed and afflicted. 
And all they could do was cry out unto God because they had no power to help themselves in those days. And yet God was extremely merciful to his people with remarkable, mighty power. God rescued Israel from their hopeless slavery. He brought them out. He even parted the Red Sea so that they could go through on dry ground. He'd done tremendous things for the people. And you might expect now that they would live before God with fullness of joy, with confidence, with thankfulness in all that the Lord had done. As one of our hymns goes, you know, for all the Lord has done for me, I never will cease to praise him. And for his grace so rich and free, I never will cease to praise him. And you might expect that that would be the, if you like, the theme song of Israel. The Lord has done so much for us, we will never cease to praise the Lord. You might expect them to live with that attitude, but not to be. You find that once they were delivered from the powers of Egypt, they still had to face the difficult circumstances of life in the wilderness. Water was scarce, resources were limited, and Even there, you might expect them to continue trusting the Lord and having confidence in their God who'd done great things for them already. But instead, they were so consumed with discontentment. And time after time, they began to grumble and to complain against the Lord. In fact, on one occasion in Numbers 11 and verse 5, you shockingly see Israel complaining even about the manna that God has been giving graciously from heaven, this bread from heaven. And that they even say, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And they're they're essentially saying, oh, to be back in Egypt, under the bondage of Egypt, that we might have the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and all this. They despised what God was presently giving them and doing for them. And they were brought down through this constant spirit of discontentment. Well, those things are written for our learning. And we similarly need to guard our hearts against this spirit of grumbling discontentment. Here's Paul coming to the end of his letter to the Philippians. And he's addressing a practical matter. The church seems to have sent him a gift to try and help supply some of his need. And so... In part, what he's doing here at the end of the letter is expressing his thankfulness and his gladness at this gift that they've sent to him. But he's also wisely making clear to the church that his joy is not derived from whether he has stuff, whether he has received their gift or not. Paul didn't have a covetous heart. He he certainly wasn't in Christian service so as to try and get rich off the, the giving of God's people. No, he makes clear here that though he's thankful to God for what has been received, yet he is content with what he has. So in verses 10 and 11, he says, first of all, yes, that he does rejoice in the Lord. The Philippians have extended their love toward him again. They've helped to supply some of his need. But he adds one of the great statements of contentment that you find in the Bible. Not that I speak in respect of want, of lack. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I have learned to be content. Of course, that's a lesson that we all need to learn. There's something that undid Israel in the wilderness. Here's something that would undo us if we don't learn the lesson. Contentment. It's something that will immensely benefit us. It's something that will be of immense 
advantage to us. It's something that will make our lives all the more glorifying to the Lord. Contentment. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Paul wrote, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, obviously, the godliness part of that is very important, but also contentment. Godliness with contentment. So today we're thinking about this great blessing of contentment. First of all, let's just notice the, I'll call it the power of contentment. Uh, To paraphrase these verses, Paul says that he rejoices in the Lord that the Philippians have renewed their support of him. They seem to have sent him this gift. He'll mention in verse 18 that he's received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from them. So he's rejoicing in their gift. But he makes clear in verse 11, he's not speaking from a place of total lack. He's emphasizing his joy is not wrapped up in whether he has this gift or not. And the reason why his joy isn't wrapped up in whether he receives the gift or not is because he's learned this important lesson. He's learned, regardless of his circumstances, to be content. He goes on and emphasizes in verse 12 that whether he is abased, that is, brought low, or whether he is abounding, nevertheless, he can be content. He's learned to be content whether he's got an abundance of resources or whether he's going without. He knows how to cope when he's abounding and everything's going wonderfully. He also knows how to cope whenever he's suffering need. In all these different times, Paul can bear up. In all these different times, Paul can still rejoice. His joy is not attached to his circumstances. His hopes don't rest on how nicely life seems to be going outwardly. It's all because, as he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now that word, that word translated content is it's an interesting enough one because in the secular literature of the day, it was a word that was often used to refer to someone who was absolutely sufficient in themselves, who was self-supporting, who was independent of others. They didn't need help from anywhere else outside of them. They had everything that they needed themselves. Now, of course, when Paul uses that word, He's absolutely not saying that he is self-sufficient. He's already expressed the idea of relying on the Lord when he told us in verse 6 that we're to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We're we're not to be self-sufficient. We're to be God-sufficient, you could say. We're to be fully reliant on our God. That's how Paul lived. He's living in reliance on his God and on his Savior. And and he certainly isn't promoting self-sufficiency in that absolute way. But I suppose whenever you think about this contentment here, there is this idea that under God, in the care of the Lord, Paul has absolutely everything that he needs. He's got it all. Under the care of God, there is this sufficiency. He's got all that he needs for every circumstance. No matter how the conditions change, no matter if you're looking on at Paul and he's having a real good day and everything's going well, or if you're looking on and everything's falling apart around him, regardless, Paul has everything that he needs as he rests in the care of his God. He, is, he has sufficient. He's content. And of course, there, there are all kinds of things that could potentially unsettle us and, as we make our way through lives and 
our lives and threaten our contentment. But with this godly contentment, Paul can face it all. He, first of all, you could say he can, he can face up to reputation problems in explaining his contentment. He says in verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Now that word abased, it refers to the idea of being humbled. It's the same verb that was used in chapter 2, verse 8. It referred to Christ who humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. It's a, it's a verb that very much got the idea of being brought low, being brought down. And of course, there's the practical side to that, you know, maybe in terms of finances and resources and all the rest, being brought low, being afflicted. But there's also this idea of being brought low, being humbled before the eyes of man. It's the same word family, um, it's, it's in the same word family as a word used in chapter 2 verse 3, where we as believers are urged, urged to do nothing through strife or vain glory, but rather in lowliness of mind. We're to esteem others better than ourselves, this, this idea of being uh, coming low. Now, we prize our honour, at least to some extent, in our culture, you could perhaps argue that it was even more important as a concept in the culture in which Paul was speaking. In fact, the concepts of honor and shame dominate all of society. It would have done much more in our society until you know, not that long back. Think of maybe times back when there were duels fought because someone felt they had been dishonored and it was such a, a dreadful thing for their name to be dishonored. Well, in the culture of Paul's day, you certainly were to seek honor and avoid shame at all costs. The idea of being abased, of being brought low, well, that would raise eyebrows. That would be maybe the cause of a bit of disapproval and a frown that you'd be willing to be abased. That was horrifying to the senses. Well, whenever Paul was facing times of real struggle, he certainly was plenty of times brought low before the eyes of the world. He, he was perhaps seen as a fool by many. He was despised by plenty. Think of the times when he was taken and for his testimony of Christ, he was publicly flogged or he was stoned and he was at the mercy of the mocking crowd and his reputation, at least as the world looked on, his reputation seemed to be in tatters. He, he was many times humbled, brought low. But even in those circumstances, he's learned to be content. He has sufficient to see him through. He's got sufficient to rejoice and be glad even then. Contentment enabled Paul to face reputation problems. Of course, then, contentment enabled Paul to face resource problems. I suppose that's the big thrust of verse 12. Paul says that in all things, he's instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. There were times when it seemed like Paul had everything provided for him and life was easy. Plenty of times when he knew exactly where the next meal was coming from. The food might well have been in the cupboard already. Maybe he was working in an area and he was staying with a fellow Christian who had plenty of resources to meet his needs. And he could go out and face the day and come home and he knew full well that there would be food there for him and everything was going fine. He knew everything was good. There were also plenty of times in Paul's experience when life got incredibly hard. Times when he was literally hungry. And we don't just mean it's, it's been a few hours since lunch. But he was hungry. He was suffering need. He 
didn't know maybe where the next meal was coming from. There were times when maybe he didn't know how, to, how he was going to mend the holes that were developing in, in his one set of clothing, perhaps. And maybe there were, well, certainly there were times when he was maybe sleeping rough at night and it was cold. There were plenty of times when life was extremely hard for Paul, especially as he went forth ministering the gospel as a missionary. You know, think of what he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, and verse 27. He says that he was in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. We sometimes think about resource problems in terms of, you know, I can't, can't afford the holiday this year, or I'm not able to afford dinner out at the fancy restaurant. When Paul speaks about suffering need here, he means it in terms of actually going without his food, actually facing the cold of the night, living with at, at certain seasons with real poverty, and not knowing how God was going to provide for him. And yet even there, even in these things, Paul says, I've learned how to face it. I'm content. This is the power of contentment. It's the ability to be satisfied and joyful no matter what your circumstances might be now in our society there's so much materialism and we're bombarded with advertising and various influences telling us you know you'll be joyful if you just get the next big thing if you just book this experience go that way and you'll you'll find joy there recognize get this blessing of contentment and joy is not found in the stuff of the world the resources of the world it's very possible to be joyful to be glad to be sustained perfectly without any of these things and even even in the extremes of lack it's possible to be joyful glad sustained this is the power of contentment What then is the basis for contentment? What's the basis? Uh, I've said that contentment allows us to rejoice regardless of our circumstances. So obviously circumstances aren't the reason for contentment. It's not that we are content when we have enough of this world's goods. It's not that we're content when we get a good enough reputation in the eyes of the world. Rather, there's plenty of times where we need to be content despite not having those very things. Well, Paul says that he's learned in whatsoever state therewith to be content. But if contentment isn't found in having what the world would see as enough resources, getting more and so on, what is the basis for it? It's, it's well and good saying you're going to face the various extremes of life with contentment, but you know, it's, it's not just something you can stir up out of nowhere. You can't face an evening with no dinner by merely telling yourself, I'm going to choose to be content. Not unless you've got a good reason for that choice. Uh, otherwise, you're just trying to play mind tricks with yourself. No, no there is a, a good foundation, a basis for real Christian contentment. And that reason needs to be recognized. It needs to be embraced. In verse 12, you, you see that Paul says, in all things... I am instructed, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, to abound, to suffer need. Now that word translated instructed, it's an interesting one. 
I think this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. Paul there seems to be using a word that normally appears in the context of pagan mystery religions. It's a word that usually refers to being initiated into the secrets. You might think of the like of, say, I don't know, the the Masonic order or the various secret societies today where you, you sort of need to join the club and then you become initiated and you get to know presumably a bit more of whatever the secrets are that, that are that are held there. In the Greek world of Paul's day, there were plenty of these mystery religions where you've got these close-knit communities and they have their own secret rituals, perhaps. It's, it's only the initiates that get to know the secrets, or at least, you know, that's the idea. Well, obviously, Paul isn't condoning any of that, but he's using this word. And the idea is he's been initiated into the secret. He's He's been taught this secret. He's, he's been brought in to discover this wonderful secret of contentment. You see, there, there is a secret. There is a basis for it. There is an actual reason for contentment. It's not just a, a mental choice to face your circumstances with a, with a, uh, with a straight face and, uh, and being brave. No, it's not that you've got to play some sort of mind trick and tell yourself to just be content. We don't have to be like the Stoics and say to ourselves, well, this is life and I can't do anything about it, so I better just get on with it. That, that's, that's a kind of contentment that flows from helplessness. I can't make anything better, so it is what it is. I better just face it. No, there's a real reason for solid Christian contentment. And, and what is it? Well, the secret is Christ. Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things. Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The point is that it's the gospel itself, it's the person of Christ who enables us to be content no matter what our circumstances. Now, obviously, verse 13 is sometimes misused. It ends up getting applied to all kinds of strange things. You know, I can do well in my exams, or I can succeed financially in my business, or I can win the gold medal because, sure, Christ strengthens me. That's not really the point here. It's not that if you trust Christ that he'll make sure that life goes really successfully for you and and everything will go smoothly as the the world looks on. The point here is not that you'll be able to just accomplish anything you want because Christ is at work in you. The whole context here is I can face both times of abundance and blessing. I can face times of real hardship through union with Jesus Christ. My power comes through him. Now, notice a few things that are either explicitly mentioned or certainly they're at the very least implied in verse 13. First of all, it's it's certainly implied that Christ is present. Paul's words assume that Christ is near at hand. Christ is with his people. And Paul has experienced the nearness of Christ in all these different circumstances of life. His saviour is not just in some far off place. And Paul's life is not being lived at a distance from Christ. He knows the joy of ongoing fellowship with his saviour. And what a difference that makes. In times of abundance, Paul can rejoice. Not just because life is easy. He's not just glad because he's got stuff in the world. No, he can rejoice then because Christ is with him in it. And 
Even more so, what a comfort in the times of trouble when life takes a hard turn, when Paul is feeling maybe the aches and the pains in his body, or when he's feeling his stomach groaning with emptiness, or when he's facing the cold night, or when he's there in a Roman prison. What a a comfort that he's not alone in any of this. You might think of how when Paul was arrested and in Jerusalem and had been taken before the Sanhedrin and he and that was the occasion, of course, where he said he was standing there for the sake of his belief in the resurrection, and there was a bit of an uproar. And it was a hard few days for Paul, and, he, and he's brought back to his prison cell. And Scripture says that the Lord stood by him. And on other occasions, too, as he faced his, his imprisonment, the Lord came to him. The Lord very evidently was with him. But it wasn't just those one or two occasions. Right throughout it all, the Lord was with him. Christ was present. Hebrews 13 verse 5 urges us, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And then it gives the reason. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake forsake thee. Now let that promise sink into your own heart. There's, There's the word of the faithful Christ. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Never. See, Christ is with us, no matter how hard the trial, even if we're cast into the fiery furnace, Christ is there. And because of it, Paul could know the same comfort that David expressed in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack. He he maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters. And and David says in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not, David? For thou art with me. You're with me, Lord. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. I might be walking through the valley. The shadow of death might surround me. But I don't need to be alarmed. I don't need to be troubled in my soul. Because my good shepherd is with me. And when I'm feeling my lack, when I'm feeling my struggles, my good shepherd who cares for me is still with me. When the lions and the wolves are roaring, I see, I see the Lord, my shepherd. And he's, he's got his rod ready to chase them away. When I don't know where I'm going, well, there's my shepherd, and he's with me, guiding my steps, directing me aright. Thou art with me. Makes all the difference. Paul could take comfort and be content, because no matter what he finds himself in, in terms of circumstances, here's one, you could say, one circumstance that doesn't change. Christ is with him. Alongside that, not only is Christ present, but Christ is active. That's certainly emphasized in verse 13 here. Christ is actually doing something. Uh, Paul says, regarding these different experiences of life, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You bear in mind that that little word, which. It's actually, we don't really use it this way anymore, but it's, it's used of people here. It's used of Christ specifically. Uh, it's talking of, you could say, Christ who strengtheneth me. Christ is active. That's the point. It's, it's Christ who's doing this strengthening. It's not just the idea that Christ is there that strengthens him. It's, it's Christ who personally is doing the activity. In fact, notice that it's an ongoing activity. In the King James, you've got that E-T-H ending. He strengtheneth me. And that, that's a way of showing you that this is a continuous verb. It's emphasizing that this is an ongoing action. I can face all these things through Christ who is 
presently and in an ongoing way, strengthening me. He's empowering me to face these things. There's a sense then in which Paul is saying, I'm never out of my depth. Even though it might look like it at times, I'm never out of my depth, even if I feel like it sometimes, because my Savior is presently, actively giving me the needed strength to face every trial that I come across. Christ is actively empowering me and bearing me up moment by moment. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that Paul's circumstances all just become very easy. But it does mean that at every moment he's able to stand in the midst of it because Christ hasn't left him, Christ hasn't forsaken him, and in fact, Christ is actively bearing him up. To to again point you to Hebrews 13 and verse 5, we're told to be content because Christ has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the very next verse, Hebrews 13, verse 6, it says, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. See, it's not just the Lord won't forsake me. It's not just the Lord is here, present, but he's a helper. The Lord is my helper. He's active. And therefore, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Can I stress that not only is Christ present, not only is Christ active with his people, in connection with that, verse 13 here is very clear that Christ is sufficient. That's, that's of course, why Hebrews was able to say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We don't need to fear because not only does the Lord help his people, but the Lord is sufficient as he helps. That, that's what's assumed here in Philippians. It's because of this ongoing strengthening from Christ, Paul can then say, I can do all things. And just notice how all-encompassing that statement is. I can do all things. It's not that, it's not that some of the harder times in life I can, I can endure a bit more than other people. I might be able to face days when so-and-so over there can't face it. And I can do a bit more than him. No, I can face all these things. I can do all things. Not because Paul's strong in himself, but because Christ is actively continuing to strengthen him. In the context, the idea is I can stand in all these circumstances, no matter what comes my way, I can face all of it through the Savior who is strengthening me. And of course, Christ is Almighty God. He's got all power. He demonstrated that for, for one example when he, he spoke to the storm on the Galilean Sea and at the simple command of his lips the wind fell silent, the waves became still, God had spoken and nature was going to bow in submission. Well, this same almighty Christ is sufficient for all our troubles. He's sufficient to sustain us in every difficulty and He's even told us that we're not to worry about our food, our clothing, all these things. He emphasizes the care of our God that will be shown to us. He's sufficient to sustain us within so that we'll never face a time of trial that is too much for us to bear. In fact, as we feel our own weakness and 
step forward into real times of difficulty, just leaning on this Christ, that's the very time in which we are strong. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he was facing hard circumstances. He was facing a thorn in the flesh. It was troubling him. And he prayed that God might remove it. But obviously the answer came back, no. He, even though he sought the Lord thrice that, that it would be taken away, no, God didn't remove the thorn, whatever it was. Instead, the Lord gave the wonderful promise in Second Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response then was to say, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He goes on, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then am I strong. Now that, that statement sounds a bit silly in some ways. You know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Doesn't seem to make sense at first glance, but Paul really is emphasizing that in those times when he feels his weak, weakness the most, and therefore he, he casts himself all the more fully upon his saviour, he finds those are the times of greatest strength. Because he's not relying on his own faulty power anymore. He, he rather knows the power of Christ resting upon him. He, he's learned to lean on the saviour. He's learned that he's strong in Christ, no matter what he's facing. In fact, if you think about this contentment that that Paul experiences even in hardships. Uh, and he's talked about being initiated into the secret. He's, he's learned, he's been taught, he's been instructed in contentment. You could say that a major part of this instruction was in fact the Lord leading him into progressively hard circumstances. You know, it's, it's been in these circumstances when Paul has learned the all-sufficiency of Christ it's been these circumstances, these hardships, when Paul has all the more appreciated why he can be content and why he can rejoice. It's, it's in these times of trouble when he's been reminded that his joy isn't wrapped up in a nice, easy life, that, his, that actually his joy, his hope, is found in the all-sufficient Savior who redeemed him and who keeps him, and the power of Christ rests upon him. In that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, he actually says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. He takes pleasure in these things. Not because they're nice, not because they're really enjoyable to face, but, but because he realizes these are the very lessons God has been using in his life. Like the thorn in the flesh, God says, no, I'll not remove it. And yet this is the very thing that God is using in his life to teach him more about the Savior. This is the very thing that drives Paul to Christ all the more. You know, for you and me, we might not choose the hard times in life for ourselves. One of the reasons, not the only one, but, but one of the big reasons why God lovingly gives us hard times is that we might 
all the more experience this sufficient power of Christ in our lives, that we might learn all the more that our joy is found in him. Here's a a lesson that God would teach us in the midst of troubles. And often, specifically through our troubles, he'll teach you to be content in Christ. In fact, in times of trouble, one of the things that God is doing with us is he's weaning us off the fleeting pleasures of this world. He's, He's weaning us off all the empty things that we tend to put our hopes on. He's weaning us off all the stuff that the world offers us. And he's teaching us to rest contentedly in our Redeemer. Is this a lesson that's, that you've been learning? You know, that, that Has it been driven into your heart that your joy can actually be found fully in Christ? You know, Christ has given you perfect hope for eternity. He keeps you with perfect power here and now. Have you learned the lesson that if you've got Jesus, if you've got Christ, you've got enough. You really do. I mean, let's face it, even, even when our life does get hard uh, at times, and you're perhaps looking at someone else in the world, and they just seem to be doing so well, and yet they don't know the Lord, you have more than them. And it's not even comparable. You've got riches far beyond what they've got. You have Christ. You have, in Christ, you've got hope. In Christ, you've got present help. The, the, the power of Christ rests upon you in your times of trouble. Asaph learned that lesson in Psalm 73. He, he said there that his feet were nearly gone. He was envious at the foolish. He was looking on. You know, why is it that they're prospering and their life's going so well, it seems? And here's me, and I'm struggling. But in that psalm, he speaks about eventually going to the house of God and he, and his thinking is reoriented by gospel truth, and he realizes you know, those ungodly people who seem to prosper, they're going to come crashing down. Whereas, even though right now my flesh and my heart seems to fail, he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says in Psalm twenty, or he says in verse twenty-three of that Psalm, "I am continually with thee; thou hast holden me by my right hand; thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory." He's come to recognize when I've got Christ, when I've got the Lord, I've got far more than all the riches of the ungodly, and He's learnt the secret. I have the Lord; I have all that I need when I have Him. Here is the secret: you who have Christ. You think of the wonder of God's grace to you, dealing with your sin through Calvary, Christ shedding his blood that you might be brought near and have fellowship with himself, and he's gifted himself to you. You have Christ, and in Christ you've got all that you need, all that you need for time, for here and now, for eternity too. All that you need is found in him. You're complete in him. You've got it all. Here's the secret of contentment. I have the Lord. Praise God. I have Jesus. I've got I've got Christ. There's a reason for our contentment. Finally, and just very quickly, can I point out something of the attitude that flows from contentment? Contentment does make a positive impact in our lives, even as we deal with our circumstances and the people around us. It makes a difference, and you see something of that in Paul. First of all, you'll notice that it results in a thankful spirit, a thankful attitude. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Now, it's worth just remembering Paul's context. 
Paul is in prison when he writes this. Life, even presently, when Paul writes this letter, is hard. But he's not grumbling and complaining against God. He's not griping about his hardships. Instead, he is rejoicing in this good thing that he's received. He's not grumbling and complaining that things haven't worked out better. He's thankful for the blessings that God has bestowed upon him. You know, one of the great telltale signs that you're not a contempt person, therefore you're not looking to Christ, at least in quite the way that you ought to be, and finding your delight in him, is if you're prone to grumbling and complaining rather than being full of thankfulness. In all sorts of circumstances, there are always plenty of things that you could grumble and complain about. Again, Israel in the wilderness found plenty of them. But you'll also find that if you count your blessings, there'll be an abundance of them. Even in the darkest circumstances, there are plenty of things that you can be thankful for and things that you should be thankful for. Again, think of Israel. Why have you taken us away from here? We were so much better off when we had the melons and the onions and the leeks and all the rest. And at the very same time, they're despising the very gracious gift God has given, the manna from heaven. Well, Paul has learned contentment in Christ. And it shows itself with this thankful spirit, rejoicing in the Lord over the provision that the Philippians have sent, rather than just grumbling over his struggles in prison. Now, of course, I'm not saying you can never query why the Lord has allowed some difficulty in your life. Certainly, you can bring these questions to the Lord in prayer. But as a pattern, do you have a murmuring heart before God or do you have a thankful heart? Because that that exposes to what degree you're drawing contentment from Christ. Notice as well that contentment not only produces a thankful attitude, but it produces an attitude of charity, charitable dealings with others. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he says to them in verse 10, that he rejoices in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Now, in, in earlier days, the Philippian church had sent Paul gifts a number of times uh, to support him in the work, to sustain him. Undoubtedly, Paul was glad about that in past days. It seems, though, from the way that verse is phrased, that it's been quite a while since Paul has received anything from the Philippians. It's, it's only just now at the last flourished again, this care for him. So it seems that for a while that season had ended. You could say the flowers weren't budding. And for, for a while Paul had gone without their support. And now the Philippians have renewed their support to Paul. And finally they've, they've sent them something more to help him. So, so there's been this gap in the middle. But you'll notice Paul is quick to give an excuse for any perceived neglect of himself. You know, even if for some time now they haven't sent to inquire after him or to send him any gift, he he doesn't challenge them over it. No, no, in fact, he does the very opposite. He he excuses it. He says, you were also careful. You were full of cares for me, compassion upon me, but you lacked opportunity. Of course, you had a heart for me. I know it. You just didn't have the opportunity. You didn't have the ability to help. Now, on the one hand, you could argue that if, they, if they'd really enough determination to help, then they could have sent messengers earlier and maybe given them some extra support along the way. And, of course, they owed so much to Paul for how God had used them in their lives. But instead of 
directing his thoughts that way. Why have they stopped sending me anything? Why why has the communication been cut off for a while? Instead of thinking that way, Paul assumes the best of them. He's willing to suppose that they would have helped if there'd been reasonable opportunity to do so. He's dealing charitably with them. He's not getting grieved by what they haven't done. He's thankful for what they have done. If ever thoughts would arise, you know, they should have done more. He's driving those thoughts away. He's, he's rejoicing in what they have done. Ultimately, you see, he doesn't need their help. Now, it might feel like he does at times. Paul's life was hard. But he doesn't ultimately need their help. He, is, he has sufficient in Christ in the care of his Savior. He's got all that he needs in the Lord. He's not reliant on the Philippians. He has sufficient in Christ. And yet from that place of security in his Savior, he can then avoid grumbling and despairing and complaining over what they haven't done. He doesn't need it. He can rejoice in what they have done. Now, again, if you don't have a charitable spirit to fellow believers, if you're always dwelling on what hasn't been done for you, rather than rejoicing in what has been done, again, it often exposes a heart that is failing to draw contentment from Christ. If you've got a heart prone to grumble either about God's providence or to grumble about fellow believers, rather than having a heart marked by thankfulness to God and charity to the people around you, recognize that often the problem is primarily you. It's primarily your heart. The answer of God's word would be, get your attention back onto Christ, your good shepherd. Come again around the gospel truth. Recognize afresh what you have in your Redeemer. And with your eyes upon Christ, let the Lord spread the gospel feast before you in the presence of your enemies. Get your eyes on Christ and recognize that in him, you have got more than enough. In Christ, in his salvation, God has gifted you with far more than you could ever have imagined. May God teach you all the more the secret of contentment. May help us each one to rest all the more gladly, contentedly in our Redeemer. May the Lord help us to learn the secret and to live out the lesson. Amen.